Okay. So to start out the retreat, it's good to take a time of preparation. In this first conference, um, I want to go over in depth these four basic rules. And the first rule is to pray for the preacher. And it is an important one. And it's a rule that needs to be applied in all retreats. You pray for the preacher for many reasons. You don't pray just for his salvation, in this case it's a him. You don't pray for just his salvation or something like that. But you pray that the Holy Spirit might descend upon him and use his words so that he might be filled with a grace or a charism of preaching. We pray that this retreat might be filled with the charism from the Holy Spirit. Is not just a class when he speaks. That as a charism, there might be a door open within your heart so that you might live of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that takes the poor words of any human and gives them personally to you. Many a time when you walk out after preaching and someone says, wow, it feels like you're speaking directly to me. And so it should be during a retreat. And the act of praying for the preacher is also an act of interior conversion and opening of oneself. Because we're also praying for our own heart at the same time. There is actually a, a charism. We speak of, like, for example, the charism of miracles, and tongues. There is actually several forms of charisms that the Holy Spirit can give that are charisms of preaching. And during a retreat, there's a specific charism that we pray for. It's called sermo sapientiae in Latin. Sermo S-E-R-M-O, sapientiae, S-A-P-I-N-T-I-A, wisdom, the preaching of wisdom. The other kinds would be the preaching of knowledge or the preaching of understanding. Um, it's different from the gift of wisdom, which is a gift directly of the Holy Spirit, which is bound to grace. This is the actual preaching of wisdom, and in that, there's also another side of it. There's the one who preaches it and the one who lives of it. So there's also a charism of receiving wisdom. And it's important because Sermo Sapientiae is the grace to be able to live of each word. So it's a grace that goes beyond the words of the preacher. It's, it only really comes from the Holy Spirit. It only really comes from the Holy Spirit. It's this grace of living of the word that the preacher is saying. Often, at the beginning of a retreat, I like to remember a priest named Father Deho. Deho, he, one time he was preaching the Carmelites. Um, this must be about 100 years ago now. He was preaching the Carmelites, and... He had been preaching for quite a while. He had been going all around France. 
and he was preaching during mass and he had this black hole kind of thing, this big uh, gap in his thought. And at that moment, he kind of lost it and he just cried out. He screamed, ah! And some people got really shook up and left the church. And a year later, he came back because the sisters had invited him again. And he's really like kind of suspicious of why they had possibly invited him again after he was remembering what he had done during that homily. And a young novice came in and said, thank you so much for the retreat that you gave last year. And he said, well, what was it about the retreat? He said, well, there was this moment where uh, you just cried out in the middle of a homily. And it shook me up so much that I went walking. I had to leave the mass, went walking through the forest. And it was at that moment that I felt my calling from the Lord. And so that would be the grace of Sermo Sapientiae, which has nothing to do with the preacher. (laughs) And that's what we're asking for. That's what we're asking for. In the praying for the preacher, it's also a praying for the retreat that you might live of that message which the Holy Spirit has to give to you, which will be different, you know, than perhaps what the preacher even intends. When he cried out, he didn't intend that. He didn't intend that whatsoever. But the Holy Spirit does want to speak to your heart. And in the moment that you start to preach, it's the moment that you start to pray, rather, you open up your heart. You open up your heart to a conversion. And you know that our life is a constant conversion. It's an everyday thing. It's this constant exercise of coming back and recognizing that we have all fallen short and that we depend upon His grace. There's a good passage to read in Scripture at the beginning when we're talking about this one point in the praying for the preacher, and it would be Exodus 17. It should be one that you're all familiar with. It's the one where Moses raises up his hands, you know, as they're going to battle for a retreat, especially when we're talking about it this time. It's on spiritual warfare, in part. A retreat is a battle. And remember that the Jews at that time, when they're in Exodus, they are leaving Egypt, so they're leaving the world. They're leaving all that is good in the world, you know, all the great food. And they're already saying, why have we left the great food of Egypt? Let's go back to all the leeks and all the other kinds of vegetables that we had. And they're going out to the desert. And while they're going out to the desert, the desert is the place where God is going to woo them, where God is going to bind their hearts to him, where he's going to bring Israel into the intimacy of his covenant, of his covenant, where Israel is going to become the spouse, where the wedding is going to take place. That is the process of them walking out to the desert. And as they're going out to the desert, there is an enemy who is going to try to stop them. And that enemy, en- enemy, Eminina, that enemy, Eminina, is Amalek. Amalek. And it's, so it's chapter 17, verse 8 and following. 
Then came Amalek and fought with Israel at Rephidim. And this fight is going to stop them from entering into that intimacy. It's right before the covenant is going to be bound, right before the wedding is going to take place. And Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out, fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with a rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek. And Moses... Aaron and Hur went up on top of the hill. When Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him. And he sat upon it. And Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua mowed down Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. So this first rule is pretty important. Notice that Moses is going to be standing up with his arms up before the Lord. And he can't do it on his own. And so who stands next to him? Aaron and her. And they start by giving him a seat. And then they hold up his hands. And there's something very important. Because there is a battle that takes place during every retreat. And the battle is to receive the Spirit. To receive God's message for us. So that we might enter into that covenant, that bond with Him. And so... While praying for the preacher, you're actually praying that you might be seduced, that you might be seduced by the beauty and goodness of God, who is your spouse, who's calling you into the desert. That's actually what you're praying for. And even if it is that random cry when the preacher messes up, let it be that random cry that seduces you to walk into the desert, to enter into that marital bond with the Holy Spirit. And preacher cannot do it by himself. He needs to be invaded and held up by prayer. There's also that whole aspect that um, we all have the nostalgia for. Um, and it, remember that verse in John 7? where Jesus goes in the middle of the crowd and he cries out, from his heart shall flow rivers of living water. Rather, it's cried out, from his heart shall flow rivers of living water. There is this nostalgia, that this desire, this longing, that the words may flow from the interior, may flow from the heart. A great example of it, too, is Mary, Our Lady, Remember at the visitation, first you have the Annunciation where Mary receives this great news, this good news, this incredible news, this news that is entirely interior for Mary, very private, and yet for the whole world, and so very public. This news which at that moment when the angel appears to her is 
going to change her world on so many levels. Her interior life, because now she becomes the tabernacle. Her relationship with those closest to her, now Joseph, what is going to become of Joseph? It changes her relationship with the world as now she becomes the mother of the Messiah. And she goes to Elizabeth and she's carrying all this inside of her and Elizabeth cries out. And Mary cries out in response. And it's this rivers of living water that flow from her heart. My soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. My spirit exalts in God my Savior. For he hath looked upon the lowliness of his handmaid. Henceforth all generations will call me blessed. And so she cries out the Magnificat. And the Magnificat is that great example of Sermo Sapientiae, that great example of that thing that we long for, where she's able to speak the words of the entire Old Testament, really. When we're reading through it, it's the entire Old Testament that's present in those words, but is made hers. And in making it hers, it's also made ours. It's the greatest way to render thanks. It's the greatest of prayers for giving praise to our Lord. If we're praying for that preacher, it's so that we might convert, so that the Holy Spirit might descend upon us like an unction. St. Paul, um, he, when he was in Macedonia, he had a good example of this where his preaching will descend. And it would be Acts 16, verse 4. Acts 16, verse 4. It's very brief. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered them, delivered to them for observance the decisions. No, 14, sorry. I knew it. I was like, oh, it doesn't sound. Okay. Verse, chapter 16, verse 14. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to give heed to what was said by Paul. It's nice because it's the Lord who opens her heart. It's the Lord who opens the heart. There is the grace of the preacher, the grace of the receiver. And it's the Lord that does both. And it's the Lord that is in charge of both. And in this passage, we see how it is the Lord that doesn't just open up the mouth of the preacher, but also opens up the heart of the receiver. Rule number two. Invite Mary. Mary is invited as the counselor of weddings. St. Thomas Aquinas writes about it in his commentary on St. John when he's commenting uh, on the wedding of Cana. 
It's a beautiful passage. It'd be good to read it to you. That passage of um, St. Thomas's commentary, where she is the counselor to all weddings. The mother of Jesus is mentioned when he says the mother of Jesus was there. She is mentioned first to indicate that Jesus was still unknown and not invited. But in its mystical meaning, the mother of Jesus, the Blessed Virgin, is present in spiritual marriages as the one who arranges the marriage. Because it is through her intercession that one is joined to Christ through grace. In me is every hope of life and of strength. Christ is present as the true groom of the soul. As is said below, it is the groom who has the bride. The disciples are the groomsmen united, uniting the church to Christ, the one of whom it is said, I betrothed you to the husband to present you to a chaste virgin to Christ. So Mary is the one who prepares the wedding. And inviting Mary here, she is the one to prepare the wedding of our soul to that of Christ. And it is the disciples or the apostles who are the groomsmen standing by your side and presenting you to Christ. So if we're inviting Mary to this retreat, we have to know that Mary herself lived of these retreats. And where did Mary live of the retreats? I would see three different areas where Mary was living of a, a retreat. Being a, This retreat is where we escape and we go into the desert to espouse our soul to God. Mary herself, I think her first retreat would be the visitation. It's not the retreat that we normally think of because there she's doing a lot of work. You know? There she's doing a lot of work, but it is a retreat for she escapes her life where she was and she goes in an act of fraternal charity and an act of great joy to encounter her cousin Elizabeth. And in those little things, we find this immense joy, as said in the Magnificat, as we were just mentioning, this immense joy in the encounter with Elizabeth. Also, we find with Mary this time for her to live of the presence of Christ as she it has become the tabernacle. So this presence within her and within her womb as she realizes fully that she is now mother and at the same time she is now in a special way daughter of God for it is the Father that has looked upon her and in a special way spouse of the Spirit for it is not through Joseph that she has someone in her womb. It is through the Holy Spirit. And so she has these weeks, these months with Elizabeth in order to retreat from the world and to live of the reality that has gone on within her. Another time, 
is those 40 days in the desert where Jesus goes out into the desert. While Jesus is tempted, she's united with him. Mary was always united with the heart of Christ. The baptism, she heard those words, the words of the Father, And she would meditate upon those words of the Father when the Holy Spirit, the dove, will descend upon him. She'll meditate upon those words. And while he is in the desert, in her heart, she certainly went with him. When he arrives at Cana, which is after the desert, he arrives already with five people already five of the disciples, right? And so for her, she's living of all this beginning. And at Cana, in realizing what had happened at the baptism, realizing the time of the desert, and now realizing that he's coming already with his disciples, she's realizing that it has already begun. And she's going to say, they have no wine. And during those 40 days in the desert, she too must have lived what Christ was living as their hearts were so united. And she too would unite her heart to the will of God, unite her heart to the will of the Father, accepting that he is the only begotten Son, and then offering him up to the Father. The third retreat that she had lived was the cynical. The cynical, that was a difficult time and a beautiful time for her. She had lost him at the cross and watched him die and a sword had pierced her heart. And she had rejoiced at the resurrection to have him near her again. She immediately lived of it in faith, in knowing that he is the Son of God, but she still had a heart of a mother. And so her heart of a mother rejoiced to have her son next to her again. And then after those 40 days, she's going to lose him. She's going to lose him again. He's going to ascend. He ascends up into heaven. She doesn't lose him in the same way as she did at the cross, but she did lose his presence. He wasn't there. He did ascend. And so her mother's heart had to offer him again. And at the same time, all those words are resonating within her more than any of the other apostles because she is immaculate. Those words that he had said, it's better that I go so that I might send you the paraclete, the Holy Spirit. Those words resonating within her, she is standing there and crying out, crying out, Send your spirit, Lord. Send forth your spirit, the spouse of our soul, that we might be united, united to him. Very good. And so it's like there's three retreats, the joyful, sorrowful, and glorious. The joyful, sorrowful, and glorious uh, retreats of Mary. And which one will this one be for you? And that's what we have to discover.
the joyful, sorrowful, or glorious, where she will retreat away from the world and unite her heart to her spouse. And so we pray in inviting Mary that she may, as the one who arranges the marriage, she may form our souls to be like unto her son, like unto Christ, conform to Christ. The third rule um, comes from, as far as I could tell, Mother Teresa. She probably, usually she gets quotes from other people, but uh, so it might not actually have come originally from her. But uh, nevertheless, it became popular because of her. Um, and usually we say this for every Mass, to live of this retreat as if it is your first Mass, your first Mass, your first retreat, your last retreat, and your only retreat. You have to live this as if it is your first, your last, and your only. St. Elizabeth of the Trinity actually had that grace to know that the retreat that she was living would be her last. And it's a great way to live of it. Because in doing so, you're able to let go of everything else. There's a reason why the monks of old often would have a human skull on their desk. It's kind of uh, weird. But there is a reason. It's because they were able to look at it and say, one day this skull will be my skull. One day this skull will be my skull. One day this skull will be my skull. And in doing that, we're reminded that every day I have to live of it as if it is my last. And that is very important, as if it is my first too. Because if it was my last, that would, only, that would be depressing. It's also my first. It's also that first moment of encounter. And that's what's beautiful about God. He is always new and always old. He is always new and always old. And it is, therefore, a grace to live in the present, to live in the now, to be able to let go. And so that first, last, and only is a common thing that now you find outside of the church, too. You know, Steve Jobs would talk about that. It's a general principle that just makes for good living. Good living, living each day as if it is my first, my last, and my only is an excellent principle to live your life by, but is more important during a retreat than any other time of the year, being that you only live one retreat a year. Otherwise, it would be every time you live a retreat. It is more important to emphasize that now than at any other point. And so, once again, pray for that grace that we might live of the eternal which transcends time, which goes beyond time, which is Alpha and Omega. That we might touch the eternal which is now. You know, the God who is all time is here now. The 
last of the four points, the four rules, is the rule of silence. Now, I don't think that this is a silent retreat, but nevertheless, every retreat has to have a bit of silence. And the Desert Fathers, I believe his name was Arcanium, Arcanium the Great. He would say, when he's speaking about the silence of the desert, he'd say there's two aspects. The silence implies escape and asceticism. And the Desert Fathers were those fathers that, remember, lived in a time where all of a sudden Christianity became popular. Constantine had converted. And so all of a sudden the emperor is now saying, everyone become Christian. And so all of a sudden everybody wants to become Christian for not clear reasons. And as they want to become Christian for not clear reasons, the Holy Spirit moves people to abandon everything and go out in the desert. And we have the desert fathers who say no, no to politics, no to the ways of the world, to money, to anything else. And yes, to God and God alone, so that my heart might become the spouse of the Spirit. And so there's escape. Escape means for us no telephone, unless you're recording it. No telephone, no emails, no contact. I'm sure if you absolutely have to. But to what degree do we absolutely have to? It's only about a little more than 24 hours now. We can survive. It's escape. It's cutting ourselves off from the world. And in cutting ourselves off from the world is good unless you're the one keeping track of the time to even lose track of time. If you're the one keeping track of the time, you have to. But if you're not, it's good to even take off your watch. Unless you have to know generally, you know, when when the next time is going to be and there's no bell or something like that. In a retreat, it's good to lose track of that time. And just to live right now, searching for the presence of the Spirit. We escape. That's an important part. Because we escape from the world and we go into the desert. Remember that the Israelites lived for 40 years in the desert. And it seems that St. Paul, according to our understanding, he also, after his conversion, went into the desert before he went back and met with Peter and then went off back to his home and started making tents in Tarsus and then finally was called out to preach many years later. But St. Paul went out in the desert. St. Augustine went out in the desert. St. Benedict went out in the desert. I believe St. Jerome went out in the desert. And let's go down the list. I think everybody pretty much goes out in the desert in one way or another. Escapes. So that first aspect of silence is escape. It's in the desert that everything is taken up by God, that God eats everything up in us. That we become conformed to God who is within. 
And practically speaking, it's a good rule to keep when you come on a retreat, um, no telephone or emails or anything, contact out in the world, and not following uh, time unless you need to, depending on the formats of retreats. Sometimes they ring the bell every single time. Sometimes they're asking you to find your way. The other thing is um, silence yourself. First point is escape. Second point is the ascetic. Silence, ideally, is not ascetical. Ideally, it's this silence that comes in this great mystical moment where I'm caught up in the contemplation of God or the beauty of God. I have this intimacy. It's like, like you're standing before the beauty of creation and you're just still, you know? That's where silence really is. That's the heart of silence. Silence is in love. When I'm able to sit as a little child and rest my head upon the heart of God. That's true silence. But we can't be naive and say that that's what I'm going to stay in all day, every day. Because it doesn't work. All the saints who did that all day, every day, were a little bit ascetic. Or a lot. One of the two. Ascetic means disciplined. Ascetic is going to be that we have to make an effort at it. That ascetic silence comes first. It comes first not in priority, but in time. You have to try to be silent (laughs) and make an effort at it. And in the midst of that silence, we're longing for that silence which comes from love and contemplation. Mystic silence is when you don't want to talk. Ascetic silence is when you want to talk and you don't. St. John Chrysostom speaks quite a bit about this and saying, let the peace descend and also keep the peace in both. Let the peace descend, that is the interior peace, and that's the mystical, and that's the Holy Spirit, but also keep the peace. And then he adds, if you let the peace descend and you keep the peace, people will convert by your side. That's a nice quote. If you let the peace descend and you keep the peace, people will convert by your side. And it's true. I mean, if you look at Padre Pio, or if you look at uh, St. John Mary Vianney, it's all about um, letting the peace descend and keeping the peace. And thousands upon thousands convert by their side. How is it that St. Therese will be the patron of missions? She has a profoundly missionary spirit. But above all, it is by letting the peace of Christ descend. She remember, she's first of all a contemplative inside of her cloister, never leaving the convent, never leaving the convent with St. Therese. It's all, why would you do that unless it's to search for his peace? <laughs> it makes no sense unless it's to bind my heart to him, to bind my heart to him.
Now, those four basic rules will be good guides for you throughout this time. They'll be good guides to help you to walk through this retreat and remain faithful in praying that the Holy Spirit would descend upon the preacher and that the words of the preacher might be used for your own heart. Whatever the preacher may say, even if it's a cry. Even if it's a cry. That Mary might become the one who arranges this marriage, this retreat. That Mary might be taking on her role as mother. That we might live of this retreat as if it is our first, our last, and our only. And that we might search best we can to have that interior silence. Now, this being said, I, as I said at the beginning of that silence section, this, to my knowledge, is not a silent retreat, per se. Although, if you would like to be in silence, that is fine. Although, if to um, you happen to be uh, having that free time and someone asks you for something, you might want to respond. <laughs> you know, it's not a strict silence. And if you're sitting next to each other, you might want to talk. But if you want to just remain in silence while eating, that's fine too. And very good. Now, that aside, it's, we have a few minutes to reflect. The next thing that's good to know as an introduction is that every retreat begins with an examination of conscience and recognizing where I have fallen short. And this examination of conscience, I think, is absolutely vital. In the beginning, though, because this is um, on spiritual warfare, we'll talk a lot about different things. (laughs) And most of the conferences today will be about different struggles. But I would like to speak about the three different kinds of struggles that we have. There are three levels of warfare that go on. It's very important to recognize that, is n- the, that we do fight the powers of the evil one. We do fight the powers of the world, the powers of the angels, We do fight the devil, and he is prowling about looking for the ruin of souls. And in doing so, when fighting the the devil himself, we have to take on the arms that Christ has given us. But that's not the only fight that we have. There is the fight with the devil, but there's also the fight against myself. In Scripture, we will also find that the battle, spiritual warfare, is with ourselves. And in fighting against ourselves, that's where we'll talk about the seven deadly sins. 
and the temptations that come with. And lastly, we actually are supposed to also fight with God. Let's read a passage. A famous one at that you should be thoroughly familiar with. In Genesis 32. And it's with Jacob who fights all night long with the angel. But it's very rare that you hear in life that you're supposed to fight with God. But Jacob does. And it's not just any minor text. It's one of those texts we quote all the time when he wrestles with the angel. So it's chapter 32, verse 22 and following. The same night he arose and took two wives, his maids and and eleven children, and crossed the ford to Jabok of Jabok. He took them and sent them across the stream and likewise everything that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And so, hence the aspect of desert, hence the aspect of retreat. Jacob is left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. So it doesn't say it's God yet, but it will in a verse. When the man saw that He did not prevail against Jacob, and God's losing. He touched the hollow of his thigh, and Jacob's thigh was put out of joint as he rustled him. And there is this sweet wound that happens upon our heart. Then he said, Let me go, for the day is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And there you see his grit, his perseverance, that he doesn't give up. And he wrestles with him all night long, even though his hip had been taken out of socket, I guess. Even though his hip was gravely wounded, he still continues to wrestle all night long to show his perseverance. Well, not to show it, to do it, to persevere so that he might have that blessing. That hip out of the socket is much similar to the cross, where Jesus is going to wrestle with the Father so that the Father might send his blessing down upon us. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall shall no more be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men, and I have prevailed, and have prevailed. You notice he prevailed over God. I'm reminded of St. Catherine of Siena, which was the story that kind of, well, didn't kind of, that brought me to decide that it's possible to love God with an immense folly. That it's possible to have a relationship with God. I was entering into a story of her life. I was really impressed by how Italian she was. And my idea of Italian at the time was the woman who fights with her husband all the time. And that I was seeing how Italian she really was. She was that way with the Pope. She told the Pope what to do, and he did it. And so St. Catherine 
to, told, prayed to God and prayed to God that her, her mother, Mona Lapa, who, by the way, had 26 children, 26 children, that's pretty amazing. Even mathematically, it's amazing. <laughs> yeah. And she had 26 children. And Mona Lapa, though, was a tough woman. And that woman really wanted her to get married. I remember how Catherine, if you remember her story, Catherine said, no, she's also an Italian woman. I'm not going to just bow down before you, Mom. I'm going to give my life to Christ. She cuts off her hair, you know, and reading the life of another saint. She got the idea. Cuts off her hair. Her mom panics. Puts her to work. She has to take care of everything in her house. She has to take care of everything in the house. Remember, 26 kids, half of them had died. But then the other ones got married, and then they had other kids, and then they have the servants. She has to do all the dishes, all the cooking, and everything. Catherine doesn't have time to pray. She learns that she, doesn't, she can pray while she's working. She learns about the interior cell, which is one of the principal core points of her doctrine, that we live with Christ within us, and we pray at all times and whatever we do. And then what does St. Catherine do? Praise with God. God is appearing to her at, the, at this point. And she realizes that her mom's not in the state of grace. And she gets Jesus to promise that her mom would not die without being in the state of grace. And then the black plague comes. She's working on the other side of the town when her mom dies. It's like, what is Jesus doing? You know, her mom died. And she died not in the state of grace. So, oh, did she ever give him a talking to? She went into a room and prayed all night long, and she came out the next morning, and her mom was resurrected. And now that's an Italian woman. <laughs> and I loved Catherine. <laughs> I, I love Catherine. Catherine was a, that first moment I said to myself that if she could be Italian and have her relationship, she didn't have to enter into a form like I am perfect sister. But she could be herself, you know, and God will use that. I knew that it was possible. And for her and for us, there is a necessity to fight with God for his blessing. There is a necessity to fight for God, with God for his blessing. We do fight all night long, and that wound is that wound of the cross. And in the midst of that wound, we still persevere with that wound of the cross that wounds our soul, all the betrayals in our life that make us bitter, we still persevere. And with that grit, which is rooted in hope, we hold on to God until he gives us a new name. That name rooted in the Spirit, rooted in our baptism, that name which carries us forth into eternal life, and receiving that new name, we ask for his blessing. And with his blessing, we enter into eternal life. And so, during this retreat, may you wrestle with God. May you fight back the evil one. And may you learn to be sensitive to what goes on within you so that you can name what is sin. And in naming what is sin, that the Holy Spirit might come and chase away, chase away the works of the evil one within you and all temptation 
so that you might remain firmly rooted in Christ. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.